0: Austin Pendleton sat down for a one-on-one interview in April of 1999. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theater Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast. It is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited.
1: Welcome to our one-on-one conversation with Austin Pendleton. I'm David Diamond, Executive Director of the STC Foundation. Um, I'm not going to ask you to go through and tell your biography, but get right into um, sort of a discussion about your... uh, Career in the theater and your um, process and attitudes about directing. Uh The first thing I'd like to know is how you came to direct initially.
2: Well, there were two steps. First was um, I was in the original company of Fiddler on the Roof, and one one, one day on the day off, I went home and saw a production one evening that my mother was in, in the community theater in Warren, Ohio, where I'd, I'd grown up. And she'd been been involved with that all the time I was growing up. Oh, Look Homeward, Angel. You all know that play? And she played the mother. And um, there was, uh, that was, I, I saw that on the evening, I was off. From and there was a, a party at our house <coughs> afterward, and this was in the spring. <coughs> And they thought it would be great that fall for her to be in the Glass Menagerie at the same theater. And they had a couple of drinks, and they asked me if I wanted to direct it. And that was after my contract was up with Fiddler. So I said, yeah. So I did, and I, I enjoyed it a lot. So so that was sort of what made me open to the idea. Then, in, in 1969, um, I was going up, as I had for a few summers before, to the Williamstown, what's now called the Williamstown Theater Festival. And the artistic director at that time, as he was from 1955 to 1989, uh, when he died, was, uh, was Nikos Sakharopoulos. And I would go up there and act in different things. I'd been an apprentice there, and I'd been in the, then in, in the non-equity company there, and then I'd done, a, you know... Um, for, for a couple of years, i had gone up as an equity actor, and we would meet like every spring, right around now, right around right now. And he would say what parts he thought i might be right for, something like that, and I would say what parts I thought I would be right for. They wouldn't always uh, coincide. And this and this particular year, 1969, he said, and we got to talk about the directing thing. And I said, what you know, and uh, I had. Six years before that, done a scene. There was a, in the season of 1962-63, there was an eight-month program of, two, of, of a training program for what was going to be the acting company at Lincoln Center. This was when Elie Kazan and Bob Whitehead were going to be in charge of it. And the season was opening in early 1964, the first season with Arthur Mills after the fall. And the idea was to create a company. And there was a training program for 28, 29 young actors that you didn't have to pay to attend, but you were not paid either. And it was eight months for eight hours a day for five days a week. And you worked with Bobby Lewis for acting, Arthur Less for speech, and for movement with Anna Sakala. Uh, so it was pretty impressive. Well, anyway, so we would be assigned these scenes in Bobby Lewis's class. and. Um, we did, uh, and he assigned me Hamlet. So, so, uh, so, so we brought in that scene, and he liked some of the, what he called the directorial ideas, and he thought they were very interesting, and he asked me where I got those. I said, I just, those are just things I did. You were acting in the scene? Yeah, it was Hamlet. It was the scene between Hamlet and Ophelia, and began with To Be or Not To Be. And so, he said well you ought to think about directing because those are interesting ideas so i said fine and didn't think about it and then a couple years after that i went to ohio and directed glass menagerie but then uh, bobby lewis and nikos sakharopoulos were both teaching at the yale drama school in the late 60s and one day bobby apparently told nikos about this and so nikos decided that I should direct a show on the main stage. This was in the early days of Williamstown, when it was like the frontier. I mean, it was a new show every week, and he, he would he would try anything. It was before it became internationally known and all that. So I directed a production of Tartupe. I picked that because I'd been in Bill Ball's production of Tartupe with ACT. I'd played a supporting role in that. And, and I got to know it very well. We played that in Rep in San Francisco for quite a few months, and I got to know it very well. And, and Bill's approach to it, which was... Brilliant, was highly stylized, practically, practically balletic. But I thought it would be fun to, um, to, 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 uh, to try it a whole other way. And I think I wanted to pick that way just because I knew it so well uh, from having, having, been in it all those months in San Francisco, just about a year before, or a, a couple years before. So I. I picked that and did a whole other kind of production. It was was the same translation, Richard Gilbert, but a whole other approach to it, just to see what that would be like, and it worked. And then the next thing I directed was three years after that, again at Williamstown, was Uncle Vanya, and that worked. Now, I emphasize that, that they worked because a number of things I did in the years after that did not work at all, either at Williamstown or other places. And had any of those been the first two, I probably never would have gone on with it because I'd never really thought that much about being a director. But those two worked. And the Uncle Vanya, three years after the, the Tartu, that, in combination with the Tartuque, that kind of led to my being asked to do a bunch of things. I got a Broadway show out of that. This is going to sound grotesquely easy, to you know, but I got a Broadway shot of that uh, show at what, the, what, what became almost the first show at the Manhattan Theater Club that one, it was just a little place on the upper right side. And um, um, a show at Long Wharf, because Arvin was a good friend of mine. And he saw the Uncle Vanya. And um, so all of a sudden, I was a director. I and mean, I kept returning to Williamstown. Now, as I say, the next show I did at Williamstown was a critical and financial disaster. And of course, it was my favorite of the three I'd done at Williamstown. But it was a catastrophe. And it was going to be brought back for a week again at the end of the summer. he just couldn't because the reviews were so bad and absolutely nobody came to see it. it had a cult following there were such audiences there was would be the same every night <laughs> back, 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 but nobody else can.
1: could you in retrospect um identify any things that that made the first two work and the third one not quote-unquote not work i mean it was, Well, the easiest
2: way to put it is the third one was the misanthrope, which never works. Mm. Although I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, it's a great play, and it's a great title, and it has a great history, you know, so I figured the misanthrope. And Tartuffe had been a success. But Tartuffe is a much easier play for everybody, including the audience, than the misanthrope is. People don't... I mean, this recent revival, which was trashed, you know, which I thought was sort of interesting people don't know the audience doesn't know what they're supposed to do when they watch that play and I don't I don't know of a production that has ever pointed it out to them uh, the play it's the only successful unfunny comedy in dramatic literature in that you don't laugh I guess it's a comedy and it has a comic perspective there are little things in it that are comedic And yet, it doesn't have. Certainly, it doesn't and isn't meant to have the catharsis of a drama either. Mm. And there's essentially no suspense in it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just a wonderful play about what it's about. And it, but people, and but it has the outer um, outline of a comedy. And and then on top of it, it's it's by Moliere. So people and people just keep waiting for the funny parts to start and they don't really except in little isolated fragments with some of the secondary characters it's very sad you don't know how you're supposed to take alcest i mean we we did it and every production i've ever seen has done it's you take a point of view but the audience doesn't know are they supposed to think he's funny a fool like a moliere fool like you know all his other heroes or is he supposed to be a tragic figure? Who's, he's right and everybody else is wrong. And of course, the, the brilliance of the play is that it's all of the above. But it's very hard. I've never, I mean, they brought a production over from the Comédie Française once in French. This is after I directed it to the uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music. And I went to see it because that production had been with the Comédie Française for a number of years. And it was, you know, very successful over in Paris. And I went to see it. I thought it was appallingly boring. I thought it was it was the least interesting production of the play I've ever seen. I've seen a number of them. So, ever want it again? No, no, that was revered. And and uh, um, I I I uh, 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 but I I think you know it's sort of like Chekhov in a way, although you know. Well, I say the Uncle Vanya that. It worked debuties and what happened was it got terrific reviews and theater people liked it mm. and a handful of other people did and it did and because of the reviews it, it did it, it did okay uh, at the box office but again a lot of people they just don't that perspective that is in certain European plays like well like all of Chekhov, and, and in the in in the missing though where you're where you're not The, an, um, an American audience wants to know when they're supposed to laugh and when they're supposed to cry or when they're supposed to be on the edge of their seat chewing their nails. Uh, American audiences are very pragmatic that way and once I was up in a production of The Cherry Orchard and Nikos directed with um, and Reniskaya was played by Colleen Dewhurst and her friend came to the opening night uh, uh, Maureen Stapleton, who came back to into the green room after, and this was a good production, but uh, Maureen came back and saw me and said, Where's Colleen? I said, said, I said, She said, I gotta go tell her this play has no fucking payoff. <laughs> and so again, Maureen was formed as an artist in the, in the dramas on Broadway of, of the 50s and into the 60s, where there's, you know, to use her words, a payoff. Where there's a catharsis, there's a climax, there's an ending. The whole point of the cherry orchard, of course, is that there's none. There just isn't. I mean, they just leave. <laughs> and the axe falls, and the old man's left alone in there, and that's the end. And there's no kind of last minute thing of is it going to be reversed or not or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And and Americans don't know what they're supposed to do with that. I mean, that's I directed the seagull here about a year ago. It's the first time I've ever ever directed. Uh, Audrey uh, off here in New York, and Greg Naughton of Blue Light asked me to in a couple of years before. And I said, "Greg, they'll hate it. Why are we doing this?" And then, then, and then they'll blame it on the production, but they won't like the play. Is what they won't like. And and uh, but they of course they'll be afraid to say so. And 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 besides, the seagull is the hardest of all, just because of the casting. And the of it.
1: Well, we we'll go back for a
2: second too. But anyway, so it's sorry. that weird double. Perspective that is at the heart of the most interesting European drama actually, which I love but um, uh, but you get in trouble with that when you put it on i don 't know why Uncle Vanya was well reviewed and the misanthrope wasn 't I simply couldn 't tell you
1: mm. yeah. well, even going back uh, to when you first directed the first thing The Glass menagerie, mm-hmm. uh, how did you know how to
2: direct i mean what I, the first shows I'd done in New York had been directed by Jerome Robbins. He was the only director I'd worked in in New York up, up until that point. And I'd been in a lot of shows up at Williams directed by Nikos and other very fine directors up there. And when you work with an acting teacher five days a week for eight months of the kind of the kind the kind of acting teacher uh, um, that Bobby Lewis was, of course he was also a director. Bobby, so he, I, I won't say he taught like a director, but he were always being made of the form, being made aware of the form of the play, the intention of a play, the kind of behavior that would be needed for a play, how to work on a scene, you know. Mm. So I just sort of, went, but also work, working with Robbins. And the two shows were Oh Dad, Poor Dad, and Fiddler on the Roof, which of course are two very different kinds of material. And just to watch the way he staged them and worked on them, and his constant drive for clarity Mm -hmm. and uh, of making—he was always saying, "Any play, this this play begins with a with a moment that happens. Somebody comes in and talks to somebody else on on a certain day." And then as a result of that, this next thing happens, and uh, and, and it's, it's, he says, it's exciting to see how far you can go from there. And he was so clear about that. And he would, one evening, rehearsal, or on the Roof, he restaged the same scene 25 times. Restaged it in one evening 25 times. Feverishly. And it was, a you know, the, the first scene in the show, after the opening number wherever they're preparing for the Sabbath. And characters are coming in and out. And it's not, I mean, you know, a hack could have taken care of it in 15 minutes. It's not. But he just did it over and over and over again until all the values and all the clarity of it. And the behavior absolutely revealed what the scene was. And it just, and then I don't think he ever touched it again, except that, you know, when we were on the road, he made some cuts in it or something. but. And just to watch him take this scene, and that's just one example of what it was always like with him. Mm. It, how did how did working
1: as an actor how does how does working since you still do both working as an actor inform your directing? I mean, what I guess it's partially. Sometimes it gets that.
2: me into trouble as In a director. Way? I get too concerned. concerned for the actors' comfort sometimes. Oh, I'm getting better at that. Sometimes they'll say, "I just don't feel comfortable." And I'll say, "I don't care," but but I, but I used to be like this whenever that would happen. Mm. Because I know as an actor, sometimes I'll throw a fit, and the director will say, "No, but it has to be that way." And then I'll just keep at it, and then I'll, it'll be fine. You know. But I sometimes in the past I think I've gotten too. I mean, you have to you have to take into account what the actor is up up against and what they're doing, but when the whole thing starts to be controlled by that, when, when you allow yourself to be controlled by it, and that's where I've gotten into trouble sometimes, from, having, from being an actor.
1: Right. Um, aside from um, Robbins and Nikos, I guess those were the prime, uh, and I guess to some extent Bobby Lewis, did you have other teachers of directing? No, or? I've never
2: taken a directing course. Study. I wouldn't know how to teach it, either. Well, I suppose if i put something put the end of my head, I'd figure something out, because I'd done a lot of it, and I'd worked with a lot of directors. Then after that, after The Glass Menagerie, but before I started um, directing professionally, then I, I worked I work with Mike Nichols, and again, and Alan Arkin, mm. and Bill Ball. And again, although, um, as I say, uh, um, the work of Bill Ball was highly stylized, it was always about the clarity. Mm-hmm. Every one of them, that was what it was about.
1: So when you're um, casting shows that you're directing, what, what, kind, what kind of qualities are you looking for in actors?
2: I've gotten, over the years, much less theoretical about that. Mm. I mean, sometimes I'll see an actor that isn't the kind of actor I ever would have thought I would want to work with, and they've just they just seem to have something to bring the part, so I put them in it. Mm.
3: Yeah.
2: I heard a great story once about Elie Kazan directing the movie Streetcar. And he would talk to Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando in two entirely different ways. He would say, I mean, I, I, I don't know what he would say, but he would say something like to, uh, to Vivian Lee, a little upward inflection here of, of faster rhythm and everything. And he'd say to Brando not, this scene, you want to, you know. And, and often when they were in the same scene, and. Um, the result of that is they play very well together in the movie because they're very released. Each of them is very released, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I and so, and and the same when you're casting a play, I think you you find somebody who you think is going to have. Some, you don't say I only work with. I I used to do this. Say I only I only like to work with actors who work a certain way, right. and. Yeah, but, you know, you can be more flexible than that. I've, I've slowly found out over the years. Also as an actor, I mean, you know, you can act with anybody, as, as long as they can act,
1: mm. <laughs> you know. Well, when you, um, what's your, do you have a, we're going to talk a little bit about process now in, mm-hmm. in your work, um, in a first rehearsal, Situation, for example, do you have a, uh, a standard way of uh, approaching, um, you know, the first rehearsal of the actors in that situation? Do you talk, spend a lot of time around the table talking about the play? You get people up on their feet right away. How do, how do you uh, like to work a, a first rehearsal?
2: Well, I've gotten to point where if I can slip it, slip past them, the idea of not doing a read through, I do. Usually the actors rebel and one to Because first readers are such a waste of time. Everyone looks at their script, says the lines, and doesn't look at who they're talking to. And, or, and, and, and other people are just performing and they're very nervous. And, they're, and it just, you know. The, uh, um, the Seagull last year, I just said, we'll do it tomorrow. Let's just work on this scene or that scene. And then, after about a couple of weeks on the exit, he said, What happened to that read through? I said, Oops. You know? but, uh, but, uh, but, but usually you have to do a first read through. I mean, they're totally, and they're usually so depressing. Because nobody's very good. And, and you think, Oh, this isn't going to work. And, and uh, uh, every once in a while, an actor will energize a read through. They'll come in and they'll really tear it up. And it'll be great.
1: But usually, they're so.
2: And you spend time
1: during the read-through um, talking about, you know, the meaning of this or the significance no. of that
2: no. or anything like that. Uh, no, I mean, if you're going to have such a thing, the read-through should be uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. I mean, they should read it through to see what happens if you're going to have it. But um, but then what some people do is, and in fact, often when I'm in a in a show play, somebody will. I mean, you'll, you'll have that first brief and then everyone will have, have, have lunch and be falsely up, you know, and, 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 and then they'll come back, and then uh, you'll start to read through it again, and then the director will start to, hear, you know, I think in this scene you might explore one But I don't know. I, I, I like it when you sit and read a scene. Oh, if you do have a first read-through, then I usually say something about the play afterwards, some idea of what I think the play is about. I try to keep that as brief as possible, because that can get so theoretical if you haven't begun to work yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I say something. You know. And they have designers um,
0: in the room as well?
2: Yeah. Yeah, classes. and they talk about what they're going to do, you know, and then that. and. Um, um, Everybody goes, oh, nice. you know, and then they could go and say to each other, I hate the set. You know? And then, uh, uh, but then you, um, um, but then what I like to do is, if, if, we, if we have the first read-through or if we don't have it, what I like to do after the first read-through or, or right at the beginning if we don't have it, is just, you know, you get a bunch of people and you sit and read a scene, you talk about that scene, and then instantly start putting it on its feet. And um, just, uh, and then sometimes what I like to do is, you're, it's on its feet for a few days, and you play around with it, you change it, and you...
1: Do you, uh, you have idea,
2: pre-blocked ideas in your head? You hardly <laughs> at all anymore. Hardly at all. I, I mean, I used to have, like, arrows written down. You know, cross the
1: center. Crosses yeah, right.
2: And, and I, that's... Like, in, in fact, the, the show I do, I did at, at Longwood, that first show I did, I didn't have time for a different movie. It was two string plays, And with one of them, I didn't have time to pre-block it. And one of the actors in it was Joey Seabird. And I said, I haven't blocked it. She said, it doesn't matter, Austin. You will find it doesn't matter. So we just started working, and I found that the blocking that evolved was much more interesting than any that I'd ever done before. Because mm-hmm. you're right there with the actors, and you get ideas and from seeing them. And this thing starts to occur to you. I mean, you have to. All that is completely useless unless you have really worked on the play. You have to know what the scene is about, you, mm-hmm. you know, what you want to have each scene express. Um, but um, but then the blocking ideas start to come to you spontaneously. I I hardly ever say to the actors, "Oh, uh, um, just begin to move around." I, I mean, there are directors who do that, but usually. When they do that, I find it so distressing to watch. Uh, but I, but I, I'll, I'll start with like a couple of ideas, you know, and then, and then, yeah, and then they feed in, and then I think of some more ideas. And but it, but again, it has to be. I've found a scene. I mean, when you start to work on the scene, whether you pre-block it or whether the blocking was right, then you have to know why that scene is in the play and what the audience has to get from it.
1: Does the actor have to know what you know?
2: Or I usually let them discover it? I, sometimes I tell them, sometimes I don't. I mean, sometimes, you know, often these things will come up. So you will say, go over here. And they say, well, I don't know. And you'll say, no, I think you should go over here, because see, what we've what we got to get at here is. So it'll come up very pragmatically.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I find the best, the most helpful things that you say to actors in rehearsal are things that you say which come up pragmatically on the floor as it were uh where where you some tiny moment you'll you'll suddenly start to say a lot of stuff, and it'll be so related to a specific thing in the play a specific moment that that the actor will really be able to take it in, and then they'll start thinking about um, everything else in the play but if you if you say if you say all this theoretically before anyone's up on their feet or anything, usually it's just it, it gets kind of numbing.
1: You find that as an actor too. The best it? Yeah, answer? I, I hate direct. to hear long,
2: thematic dissertations in the play before I'm even up on my feet. Mm-hmm. I, I I think well, yeah, okay, that sounds wonderful, you know. So we? Can we have lunch now? You know. Mm-hmm. But um, um, and you know, and. Well, um, in
1: uh, many of the plays that you've directed, and it sounds like you have a strong affinity for um, classic plays or plays from the European canon, but when you've um, worked on new plays with playwrights, yeah. can you talk a little bit about the process? It was, uh, w- when you did, for example, Loose Ends, did you work with Michael? Well,
2: that wasn't the first production of that. Uh, that was a revival. Yeah, that was in Chicago. It was the first production in the Midwest, I think it was, was Steppenwolf. It? So an it's an example
1: been, of a first, uh, did you ever, of a The record? other
2: play by Mike Willard which was The Spoils of War. Oh, okay. That and we did, we did actually two productions of that. We did it up kind of second stage, and then it got picked up for Broadway, so we... On the Broadway so line? he revised it. No, no, mm-hmm. it was just yeah. playing Broadway. Yeah. He revised it, and we rehearsed it here and took it to Toronto, and then and, and brought back. What
1: was the process of working with Peter on it, as the play was developing? With Peter? Mm-hmm. And with my oh, 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 yeah. Um, Peter Well and yeah, well,
2: <laughs> well, he's, of course, so accomplished. He's so accomplished. He's got such a sophisticated mind as a man and as, as a writer yeah. that that's, that's a different thing from certain other playwrights I've with who were more beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, uh, you can just say the simplest thing to him and he comes back incredibly developed in all kinds of ways you hadn't even thought of. But I remember when the play was first brought to me, I said, you know, this play, uh, this boy, it's two parents, and they divorce, and there's the son who lives with the mother, and the father comes back. I are mean, a lot of scenes all about that. So I just said over a cup of coffee one day, you know, he should try to get them back together or something. Well, this turned into the whole climax of the play. Mm. And um, I would just say, very, and, it, and very richly detailed. I mean, and, and all of that was his. All I said was, he should try to get them back together. Wham! You know, that'll give it a, a climax or something. I said something. <laughs> and and um, uh, but with some writers you get you get you get into very close detailed work. You say now, why, if you set this up, why don't you not carry this through? Mm-hmm. But, um, which you'd never have to say that to uh, um, to Mike Weller. I mean, if he sets something up, he carries it through. <laughs> you know, he's been writing for years. And he knows how to. He knows all that.
1: Um, the play developed even more during the process of
2: the rehearsals, or did he do all that? Oh, action? no, all the way through, yeah, all the way through, to the point where there was a rebellion among the actors at one point. Because he was still making changes? Oh, yeah. He was always, always changing. I'm not sure we ever did find I- the ideal form of that play, mm-hmm. although I know the outer, the production form of it is not, is not Broadway. I know we learned that. Mm-hmm. It should never have been that. Why not? Well, no, it's a peculiar play. It's like it's a couple of old communists, I mean people who you know, a couple of utterly disappointed middle aged former communists and their deceitful son. What is the Broadway audience gonna do with that? Even in the heyday of Broadway, even in what is called 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 the golden age. Broadway to which Hawking replies, there was no golden age. But even if, even when lots of new straight plays were on Broadway, a play like that would never have been off Broadway. We (coughs) would have been cool. But um, so, but I don't think we ever, so we certainly didn't find the place to do it. It was fine up there at Second Stage, up in that little room on on Broadway in the 70s. It was, um, it wasn't as good a play then, but it was like a better. Place for it, and there was a feeling about it. it was The kind of people who came to see the were people who responded to that. The Broadway out of the previews, oh, people! You'd hear comments going out that freeze your blood. <laughs> you know, and then but 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 people in the theater liked it. So you'd hear these chilling. And then, you'd, and then you'd go backstage, and everybody's, everybody's dressing room would be crammed with these actors and people who were crying and saying, oh, this is wonderful. And in, in a lot of ways, it was wonderful. Certainly the acting was wonderful. And the playwright, the quality of the writing was very rich and compassionate. And, and um, um, so I, I knew the actors were hearing one thing, but there was this whole uh, silent majority that was <laughs> spreading the word poisonously, out of the street, and it was sad because I didn't want to tell anyone that, because I didn't want to depress them, but I knew we were heading to the falls, you know. Wow. I remember that production.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I liked it. I didn't like the set, and it was, it was designed by a brilliant designer. What about other... Um, we, we, had a, we, had a, we had an off-Broadway, off-Broadway designer, and they kept saying to I me, mean, you've got to get a different designer for Broadway, and I'd say, why? You have to. So like a fool, I gave you, know. and, and, and the designer we had for, had for Broadway is, is a terrific designer who I'd worked with like a few other times before that, and always very well. But we got in the wrong place really.
1: with uh, it. Let's talk a little bit about designers for a second. What, uh, um, how do you communicate to designers what, what you want in like, an initial meeting, let's say your first meeting with the designers, and you're trying to give them a sense of, you know, what you want from them or what what the play is about. Um, how do you how do you talk to them? What what
2: works? What I tell works. them what I tell them what the play is about. What I, what I tell them. What the play is about. You ask they them, mean, do them what they them. think the play
1: is about, no. or you
2: just tell them what the play is. About? I tell them what I think the play is about, and um, they and I tell them what I want. The audience to feel when they look at it. Mm. That's what I do the album.
1: And then when they, when if designers come back to you with something that
2: uh, is not, uh, yeah. Say so what did you think you were doing? <laughs> is this what we talk about? <laughs> I, see, I say no, that's not it. And they say why not? And I tell them, and they go and do something else. And then finally, it comes together. Sometimes I sometimes I even propose a. Propose a ground plan, you know, Kazan yeah. writes that you should propose a ground plan. But every time I've tried that, the designers get up in arms about it. That's out of shape. Yeah. They want to, you're yeah. doing their job. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, you have uh, constantly gone back and forth from um, acting and directing and, and films, television, mm-hmm. and, and you're always doing... It seems like you're always doing six projects, and... Uh, directing to and acting in for um, how <laughs> how does uh, being on one side like the directing side inform your acting and being in the acting? Well, I think I'm a, a
2: much easier actor to direct than I was before I started directing.
1: Mm-hmm. Ah, I think I used to be
2: impossible. Mm-hmm. You have more empathy for the director. No? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would protect my processes if it were my cub, you know. But since I started to direct, I, I know that if a director is asking for something, I'm supposed to try to give it to them. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, every, every once in a while, um, I'll, I'll throw it a little bit as an actor, but then I'll instantly, instantly make it up. You know, but I, I, I used to like really be difficult as an
1: actor. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about directing?
2: Why do you like doing it? I love that. I hate the tech rehearsals. I just
1: hate them. But it's actual that trying to figure out the play with the actors.
2: Is that... You know, yeah, I love that. I, love it? It. I Half the plays I've done, I just want to invite the audience into the rehearsal room and see it.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: I, I love the way it is, and I love that. The play I just directed was, this new play that I don't know, I don't know, it was called Admission. It was in this room. I mean, that was what they gave us, so it really could... And it was beautifully lit, but it couldn't have, I mean, it was just the audience in the playroom saying, I love that. Mm-hmm. Very I, yeah, I, I, I love, and, and, and I love when you do a, when you, when, it was the closest thing in any production I've ever directed I think, to like the feeling when you have a run through, mm-hmm. and a lot of people come in the room and watch it. That feeling, that electricity, I just love that. Mm-hmm. And I think that theater is so, something is finally that simple. or it, It's got to be that simple or it can't be any, anything else. Before it could be anything else, it has to be that. When, when I was one of the artistic directors of up at Wheatstown after he died, a whole, what they call the troika of us, we all were in charge of it one summer after he died. And there are all these directing interns there and the directing uh, assistants, they call them interns and assistants. And each of them do do projects of their own They're, the theater as you may know is on the campus of the college up in Williamstown. Williams and there are these old three-story buildings and the directing assistants and interns would put on productions in the rooms in these buildings like at 11 o'clock at night after a performance on the main stage everybody would go and see these and so you'd have a meeting once a week if you were one of the directors with the directing assistants and interns and hear what they felt about, the, about about how they were doing and what they felt about it. And um, they would you get complaints, well you know, there's there's only one dimmer in this room and and it's like you know, you just have to like turn on the lights, you can hang them in a on, but you have to like turn them on and then turn them off. And I can't. And I, I would get up on my uh, soapbox and carry on. I say, if you cannot hold an audience that way, you're not going to ever be able to hold them anymore. Anyway. And if you, your job, if you can learn here before you learn anything else how to turn on the lights, keep the audience engaged, then when you start to get all this other stuff, You'll know what it's in the service of, you know. But you, but, but you see. I think right now in in, in a lot of in a lot of colleges where people people are are, are are students of drama, they have so much. Even in the black boxes, they have so much at their at, at their command that they try to solve the problems that way. They, yeah, I mean, I mean, they try to make their points theatrically rather than dramatically if you can separate, you, and you shouldn't separate the two, with is the point I was making. But if you do separate the two, they wouldn't try to make them theatrically rather than dramatically. And i say, you've got to turn on the lights and have your actors engage each other and or the audience in a way that pulls the audience along and makes them not want to be anywhere else. That's your job. Mm-hmm. And that, com- that comes first. I'm not saying that these other things are only decoration in the hands of someone who really knows what what they're doing, those other things can add thrillingly to that, give a lot of dimensions. But it, it adds, it isn't it. Mm-hmm. So I would say this in their eyes would be glazed over and I'd we got a live one here. <laughs> Maybe next week we'll meet with one of the other artistic directors who <laughs> will understand. You know. uh, but I, I feel that in I mean increasingly when I direct a play I want it to be as simple as possible. I mean we're we're in a we're here, the audience is there, and we're enacting something for them. Now for that, also, that doesn't mean you don't need a really good designer to do that. Because if you have three things, they've got to be the three right things. And, I'm, and, and I do really need wonderful lighting, If only for the purely, well, first of all, for all kinds of reasons that are expressive, but also because it the audience gets depressed when, when the lighting is ugly. And they don't know that it's the lighting. I mean, I could see showcases and virtually they're lit by fluorescent lights. And you just feel depressed while you're watching it. Mm. And, I, and I say, why did you do that? Oh, we didn't have... The, you know. Well, I've seen showcases. I saw one last week, a production of, of a Google with. They can't have had more than 23 instruments. I don't know, maybe two dimmers. It was excellent. It was exquisite. Such care had been taken—the atmosphere, the tonalities, the and the light—and there wasn't a set. There was there was, a, there was someone who had designed the set, but what they did was take the room we were in and hang up different things. Mm-hmm. And it was so evocative and pulled you right into that world. And there was always something interesting to look at. So when you go to these these, these showcases and they just they flip on some ugly lights that are ill focused in the wrong the wrong colors, and just you can't see anything. Or if you can, it's not in an expressive way that you can't see anything. It's just you can't see anything. And I just get—I say, look, find find a way to find a way to light this. Find a way to light your next show, and then invite me here. Hmm. But I mean, I, I, it just—you feel weird. It's like people who work all day in offices, all fluorescent lights—they get depressed. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't mean these, I, I mean, I, I, I mean the, this is pleasant compared to what I mean. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, what uh, directors that are uh, working today do you particularly admire, and, and uh, what about their work
2: is, uh, strikes you? Well, you know, more and more I get to sort of tend to go on a show-by-show show basis. What which I think is also true of my own. So idea. which
1: shows are particularly, uh, have you particularly admired? In? Why?
2: Well, I don't Actually, not really really like not Actually, I'm I've liked a lot of what I've seen. I haven't seen a new one, but I've liked a lot of what I've seen Bob Falls do. Mm-hmm. I like what he does. I've seen several things of his over the past few years that I've liked.
3: Can,
1: can you um,
2: Well, articulate? I like them because they're all different. Uh. Like one year, he did the Rose Tattoo and Suburbia, both in New York. And they were both so alive. And they're not the same play. Mm-hmm you know, and they were very, uh, they were very alive and rich and, and clear, you know, and I like those. And then I've seen a couple of things since then, too, I like him. I like Scott Elliott, you know, he, he was so admired um, when he was beginning and then he did his two Broadway shows and everybody said, ah, oh, he's full of shit. But I thought those two Broadway shows were okay, mm. I think he's talented. Um, um, I, I haven't, I don't like this, I can't tell if it's the direction, well, I know it's the direction in, uh, in close-up, I think that man should not have been allowed near his own play.
1: you think that's true in general, that, direct, that writers shouldn't direct their own play? I've
2: rarely seen it go well. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I, I think I've seen it go really well a couple of times. I can't think what they are, but, uh, but, I, but, uh, but a couple of times I remember having, the thought, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. But I think it's catastrophic, usually. I mean, and but this is not just the usual problems of a, of a playwright directing his or her own work. It's, it's uh, so, just as a piece of direction, it's so ponderous. And that play needs somebody to say, "Look, it's just people talking to each other. You don't need the points of that play are so crushingly clear that you don't need to make them over again." Mm-hmm. And um, um, interestingly enough, though, a lot of the great directors in the movies have written their own scripts, and I don't know what the difference is. I mean. So I've never figured out what the difference is, why it works in film with a master, and why it does not, um, in a play,
1: uh, usually. You know, I think sometimes so much of film directing is, is scripting. I mean, you know, you are writing the play while you're directing it, by mm-hmm. just the choices you make of, of what audience is going to see. Yeah, Whereas yeah. on the stage, they're going to see the whole thing and yeah, choose maybe. where to look. Yeah. But as a director of film, you're telling them exactly where to look. Yeah, maybe. for how long? There are some earlier career directors uh, here today, and I'm mm-hmm. sure they'd be interested to hear from your perspective what uh, advice you might give them as they are engaging in their careers. Any advice for young directors? Well, if
2: they could ask me specific questions, that would be easier. OK. Why don't we do that? Why don't we open it up?
1: I'll out. give a lot of advice, but it won't be anything that means anything to anyone. Unless it's more
2: yeah. specific. Yeah. Any questions? So, I'm, I promise yeah. not to say, follow your dream. <laughs> 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 yeah. Actually, uh. it was
5: advice question, but what's the
2: good What was that experience like? It was good. I mean she is a person who, since the age of twelve, had been being directed, and so in a way she 's a, a director 's dream because she just does what you say with great commitment, but that 's what she was trained and programmed, if you will to do The only problem we ever had and there were two problems we had one was it wasn 't as good when she'd had a couple of drinks i 'm not saying anything that you can 't read a tabloid find out this. Soon after that, she went to the Betty Ford. uh, uh, If she'd had, like, one drink, it would be fine. In fact, maybe it would even be a little better than if she hadn't had. But if she would had two or three, you knew the first. Sometimes on such a night, by the third act, it would be great. But the first two acts would be unendurable on those nights. And there was no way to... I mean, I once, before an opening night out of town, consumed a huge tumbler of a drink of hers so that she wouldn't, wouldn't drink it <laughs> in her dressing. I said, just give me a." Dedicated I was director. staggered out of there. <laughs> and she said, you just drank my whole drink. I said, "All oh, right," And it was places, so what could you do? <laughs> and uh, the other thing that was a problem was that she was, uh, her ear was had by Zev Buffman, our producer. And what he knows of directing could be inscribed on the head of a pin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he, you would, she would do these kind of lovely performances, and then he'd spend some time with her. And then the next night, would be, what the hell is she doing? Because he has no taste. So he direct, <laughs> like was directing oh her. Oh, yeah, he, would, he her, would give what we euphemistically call, he'd give her notes. And, and it would, I don't like, want to... Signify it with that word, but but the but it, it and she would these vulgar obvious things and and then one night I remember the big scene with Tom Aldridge where she kills him in effect, you all know the little foxes where she talks and then he has a heart attack and then she doesn't move. Get his she was one night out of town. This is so simple in that scene because she's utterly capable of that. She's a she's a good actress, utterly. She was so simple and really good. And she has this marvelous presence, you know. Real and we were all so happy. Tom Aldridge was, I was, the other actors who watched it. Through. And Zeb threw a fit. But she wasn't doing anything. of course the next night it was like an old kind of Joan Crawford movie or something. And and so uh uh I was constantly having to beat that fire out. Um, there's, a, there's a book that I'm in called, called uh, the Role of a Lifetime that's on sale now, which is, which is biographies of four different actors, me and Lois Smith and Ron Rifkin and Gloria Foster. Hmm. And each, the whole book is a little over 200 pages long, and each of us is 60 pages long or something like that. I, I can remember. But anyway, there's a story in that, I think it's in there, where one day at Kennedy Center when we were trying out, we rehearsed all afternoon, and I was getting my hair cut by, by a new guy who was in to do the hair. The old one had to leave. And he was cutting my I was exhausted. We rehearsed the, the day, and he was cutting my hair. And after about a 20-minute silent in which he cut my hair, he said, so what do you feel about the fact that your producer is directing your star? <laughs> I said, speak on. And uh, I, because that was when I first became aware of it.
1: And how do you deal with
2: that? How, how do you deal with well, the user in that case? I just worked around him. I didn't ever confront him because I, I thought he would then find a way to find me mm-hmm. And Keith uh, he, he much preferred the show in London, which where we did it after we did it here to here, which shows how long he was. It's was terrible. We had to have a whole new set because Miss Hellman insisted it be like the 1939 set from Broadway. We had this wonderful set, here, designed by the guy who designed the Broadway production of *Spoils of War*, and he set her little was Wonderful. And we kept hearing, "Oh, you won't get away with this set in England." Of course, we opened it in England, and all these English directors came up and said, "What, is, what happened to that marvelous set?" <laughs> I said, "I mean, not the English directors." But <laughs> Zeb and Lillian and that whole sort of crowd, you know, and uh, Elizabeth said, when, when the ground plan was for Lillian, she said, what, what is this? I said, ask Zeb, ask Lillian. We couldn't get the rights to it unless we agreed to this. Mm. She said, this is terrible. I said, well, we'll find it. We'll, it'll, it'll be all right. But it wasn't. It may have been good enough for Tallulah, but it wasn't good enough for Elizabeth. And, <laughs> and, and, and rightly so. Rightly so.
1: How about other producers? Were other? That's the worst experience I've worst ever had. Um,
2: and um,
1: um, I mean, in regional theaters' artistic directors are, in essence, the producers—did they ever
2: disagree with the way you are approaching a particular? Program? I used to have huge battles with Nikos, but they were friendly battles. I mean, they were fun. I mean, they—no, they weren't fun. Let's not sentimentalize this. They were very distressing, but they were—they were, they were uh, creative. And you knew, well, the difference is you knew you were being talked to by a man whose knowledge of theater was encyclopedic, a you thing that respected. cannot be said of Zeb you know, I mean, or some of these other people, you know. And the guy, the people who, the Toronto people who pick up the Spoils of War and tried it out there and brought it in, um, that the guy where the father owns that big store up in Toronto and his son is a producer. Uh, what's his name? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, um... Um, David Mervish is the son, the producer. Wonderful. I mean, it's not like he doesn't give notes, but they are so supportive, and they're so... Had you thought, I saw the show off-Broadway, you tried a certain thing at this moment, but you're not doing anymore. You might look at that again. I said, well, we couldn't make it work. He said, but maybe you could make it work now.
1: And at least he's giving the notes to you and that directly to your actors. Right. right? And he would be
2: right. <laughs> and 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 he would he would do things like that say, i'm not sure this scene is as quite as good as it could be maybe if you always he was right but they, it wasn't like these ham-fisted behind-the-scenes competitive crap that mm-hmm. some producers did and you know the producer too i i was doing the first show on broadway I ever directed was a musical guy mm-hmm. and I, I would uh and there was this associate producer who brought in a lot of the money. It was a musical by Gretchen Cryer Nancy Ford called uh, Shelter, sort of an odd little piece. Interesting. I I'm, I didn't do a very good job with it, but but it um, it had a certain something. Was miscast. <laughs> <laughs> but but of course the buck stops here. You know what I'm saying? And and. Uh, the uh, and then on top of being miscast, the actors weren't very well directed. So what were we left with? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but but the um, but anyway, uh, it, um, the uh, the, uh, the associate producer on that was given to throwing scenes afterwards in the bar across the street about like props. I told you to replace that prop, you know. And this meanwhile, the show's an hour too long. Nothing's playing right. So I called up my friend Peter Hunt, you know, the director, and I said, he said, well, no, he came in to help me during like one of the weeks of previous. He would say, let me restage this, and, and I would, and he would fix it. And then he would so he would restage something else, and it wouldn't work. And, and I would say, that doesn't work. He said, well, yeah, what was it? The, let's go, what did you do? Let's go back to what you did. And I would, he said, oh, well, then uh, what you're doing actually is good. Now that we've changed it, I see it was good, but you just need to do that. It was fun. We had a good time. So I said, Peter, this associate producer, whose show will be nameless, is through tr- another scene last night. I mean, an ugly, abusive scene about a prop. He said, on Broadway, you are only as good as your last prop. <laughs> Which is a great sentence, because the hysteria that pervades a Broadway show. And all these people who don't know what they're talking about, if I have to look at her red sweater one more time. Well, no, actually, a red sweater is actually an intelligent critic, because, you know. But if I have to look at that thing on that window one more time, I'm walking out, you know. So go, you want to say. Go. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm trying to fix the show, you know. <laughs> and uh, there was one producer I had who who there was, it was a, a musical of the apprenticeship of Duddy So the chorus was all a bunch of middle-aged they had to look like middle-aged old jews in montreal and, and and it was all choreographed like that and there was this one guy who the producer had been to college with he says i can't stand to watch him moving in that number he could never move in college either and i would say i don't care it's a whole look that the, we're all trying to do with this show me the choreographer." the designers, the composer and lyricist, there's a whole way it's supposed to be. And this guy, the way he moves around, that's the way those people would be. In like fact, we went to Montreal and looked. That's the way they are, you know. And he but it was because he'd been to college with this guy, who he always thought was a klutz, and now he's he's moving on stage in a musical. You have gotta take him out of that I mean there were the hour well, I don't want to really but the two hours spread over two or three weeks that we spent Arguing that point. It's just a total waste of energy. Now, with an artistic um, director of a theater, you don't get crap like that. Because they're directors. And they know, they can get, you can have real arguments with them, as with Nikos. But they know that the point is the whole show. They know that there are fundamental things about a show that need to be looked at. Not something like that. And... and, um, um, uh, and the, the guy was probably right about the prop, although it was way down on the pecking order of you know, the list. The g- guy who complained about the, you know, about the actor dancing up on the stage was wrong. But in either of them, it didn't matter whether they were right or wrong, it was a waste of time to be arguing about these things. Each of these musicals, both Shelter and The Apprenticeship of Jetty Kravitz, are very complex works, with a very original tone, very intricate, complicated characters. I mean, not like a musical, actually. Um, and um, you don't, And it's just emotionally exhausting, and as well as just playing physically exhausting, to be forced to argue about the things you're forced. And have too. He threw a scene after the first preview of Little Foxes in, in New York after we went out of town. Well, this is about six minutes after this prolonged standing ovation. He threw this scene on stage about how the show was so ineptly blocked. And I said, well, okay, let's get specific. And it turned out to be like three moments in the play. I said, I'll fix them all tomorrow. It took me the next day 10 minutes to fix those three things. Now, I mean, a screaming, violent, abusive. This is the kind of thing that goes on, in case you're interested in directing. (laughs) But if you get. The way around this is to make sure you work with David Mervish. Because you'll get a lot of criticism, but it won't ever be like that. And it'll always be about stuff that's, as I say, right to
5: the point.
1: Uh, Alex, do you have a question?
5: Yeah. Um, I would rather see him Milton
2: Sullivan's Oh, is he teaching here in New York? Oh, great. Yeah.
5: And he did Central Park West in the which I had seen. And I was oh, is
2: that the one that was done with Linda Lavin? And, yeah. It was, yeah.
5: yeah. And it, was, it was clever, but it was really kind of lit. And
2: Where? In the, in, in the, in, in, yeah. In, in mine too. And, uh, <laughs> well, it is, the play is that, yeah. uh, except if you, no, I, I shouldn't interrupt you.
5: Well, keep, the keep point talking. I'm going to is, you said you're smart, you need to focus on all things. So basically, I knew, I know the way the scene works. You're talking about clarity. I was very clear. I knew you are going on. He said, but there's no life. This woman's got a husband she's needed. We're currently screwing. And this woman has a lover. And that's the real thing. And you take the actress and you take a walk with her and ask her about her ex-boyfriend. And that kind of thing. I knew that, you know, I knew the action was the I I got it. I know what it was.
0: Mm. But
5: it didn't matter. And I just wonder why... You know, sometimes you're just not aware. Okay. The, the kind the, of thing he was talking about is
2: what I mean by clarity. What I mean by clarity. And he's very, he and I, he's a little bit older than I am, but we're—but um, generationally we have the same. I mean, that's all Kazan stuff, taking the taking the actors for a walk and asking about her boyfriend. Kazan <laughs> was famous for that. But boy, did he get the. But the point is, what was always brilliant in Kazan's work is when he took the actress for a walk around town, he would ask her about exactly the right things. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So in other words, it's like being like, it's things that exactly were going to release the play. Um, um, That. I'm glad you said this because that word clarity can have the wrong meaning. The kind of people that I've worked with who are really hounds for clarity are about what's really happening underneath the scene. Not a generalized sense of it, a specific sense of it. What are the invisible things in even the most articulate text, even in Shakespeare, that or Shaw, where it seems utterly verbal, What are the things underneath that that are animating it and making those words come out? And that's what I mean by clarity. So it's like the audience is is snorkeling, and they're down underneath, and they're seeing everything that's down underneath there with total clarity. That's what I meant by clarity.
5: When you find find that you have a hard time finding
2: that sometimes? Or is, what, what do you do when, you, when you're stuck? You know, or if you don't do something I can never recall that happening. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no. That's not true. I don't know. It's like anything else. You. Well, now, wait. I, I, I want to honor that question a bit. Halfway coherent answer. You know, one thing you do sometimes, if if you stuck, you just leave it alone. You just tell the actors to keep doing it, and if they want to change the blocking a little bit, that's fine. I mean, you you give them blocking, and if they, if they want to make little variations in it, that's fine. You just let them do it over and over. Again. And gradually information starts to come to you and to them. And also, what that creates is a shared life, if you will, a bond among the actors. And that and the bond between the actors and you starts to release to to make visible these underlying animating things. Now that if you if you have an accurate sense of what's going on. I mean, you don't have to do that. Uh, you can start to, to penetrate that right from the first rehearsal and really help them. And you should always, I think, leave a little bit of looseness, a little bit of, but, um, um, uh, or sometimes you say, OK, uh, 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 let's do the scene, and you block it very loosely, and you. Give them a very
5: vague idea what it's
2: about. This is early in the process. And then they do it a couple of times and say something like, you know, that's great, but you know what I'm not getting? So in other words, you start to find it out, if you will, kind of negatively. You say there's something here that isn't clear to me. And I'm not, I think, doesn't it say in the play somewhere that she has just come from X? I'm not getting that. So then the actor puts that in. And then some more stuff starts to happen. And it still isn't quite real. Like it feels some indefinably lifeless, as you, as you put it. And you say, well, I don't know. You say to him, do you really want this? I'm not getting that you really w- I'm getting everything else. But I'm not getting that you really want this. Or I'm not getting that you really want this at this moment. Which then starts opens up all the other moments, and you and you do it. You kind of begin to hedge it in by a bunch of just making clear what you're not getting, and then very subtly, as those things are corrected, everything starts to shift, and new values start to emerge, and you see uh, and you start to see what you want, but you see it maybe in a way you never would have envisioned it. See, usually, when you're stuck, it's because the way you've envisioned bringing out the inner clarity of the scene is inaccurate, or at least inaccurate with these actors, which happens a lot, by the way. I try not to direct plays in which I have played a role in, in some other production and have really felt connected with that role. I directed, at, um, this is again at Steppenwolf, I directed Three Sisters. And it was the Lanford Wilson translation. Well, I had a great success a few years before that, first at Williamstown and then at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in the role of Tuzenbach. So we had the dressers, and out came Lanford Wilson, whose translation it was. And he said, well, I love everybody in the casting What is that Tuzenbach doing? It's ridiculous. So. And I, 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 knew he was the accurate little unhappy. So I went to him. And I said, Jeff, everything I told you, in the whole verse, period, is wrong. <laughs> he, he took it like a man. <laughs> you know, he said, "Oh, I said, yeah, it's, I, it's got to come from the fact that I'm trying to recreate what I felt when I played it." And so, just from now on, with that, we had dress rehearsal the next night then a preview and, uh, you know, a couple weeks of previews I said just come on every night even if you had to change blocking or something but come on every night and do whatever you feel like because <laughs> uh, uh, the rest of the show was fine I mean it needed work but it was essentially fine but, uh, and he did and he turned out to be one of the best people in the show but uh, it was just like saying so that's a very extreme example. I mean, it doesn't have to be a part that you play. Sometimes you in, you are envisioning the right thing, but with the wrong actor. That doesn't mean the actor shouldn't be in the role. It means that that way of yours of envisioning a certain mo- moment or scene or, or kind of line through the play isn't going to sit well with this actor. And you can back, back it's like you, you're, it's bad enough that you're, it's bad enough that, that, uh, that you're that you' that you're uh, banging your head against a stone wall, but you're also also you're banging the actors <laughs> against it, which is kind of making them numb and um, or even when you have the right actors sometimes you have an idea of the clarity of the scene and you have a way of envisioning it your idea of the clarity may be just f- fine I mean as good as any other way of seeing the clarity of See, but your way of envisioning it is, for some reason or another, inaccurate. You keep pursuing that way of envisioning it, and saying, "But this should be bringing forth what I thought it would bring forth." Well, if it isn't, it isn't. So you just say, "Okay, let's think of another way of expressing this." And um, but often it's because it is not a good match with the instruments you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I was
5: pretty. I, I can't go there. You know, one woman was supposed to be, get the other one to admit that she, that she was fucking her husband without letting her know she meant Yeah. Now, in one actress, that, that may bring out all kinds of emotions because of humiliation. That. But I kept saying, because you're humiliated. But I never really stopped and said, you're not, you're not feeling it. You probably should never... This
2: is sort of a cliche, but I think it's true. You probably should never... Say to an actor what their em, what their emotional condition is. I mean, certainly when you're acting, you're not ever encouraged to do that. But also when when you see here, there are two things that are dangerous about, this, about that. First of all. Um, You, say, you use the word humiliated. Your idea of humiliation and the behavior that goes with humiliation may be entirely different from the actors. Eight different people are going, to, are, are, are going to behave around humiliation eight different ways and even feel different things. Although the word, it's such a strong word that we think we know what it means, but it means a different thing to everybody else, to everybody. So you're dealing with a moving target there. And she say, "You've got to feel more humiliated." She says, "I am feeling humiliated." And you're at opposite ends of the table. Okay, so that's the one thing that's dangerous. The other thing is that they are then going to try to produce for you, if they're good soldiers, humiliation. Now, that is something that won't fly because. There is, except with a certain exotic few people, with the exception of those people, there is there is nobody on earth who actively pursues humiliation, and the actor in trying to bring that to you is going to try to find humiliation in themselves, whereas what everybody in the world does is to try to avoid it, and um, so the thing that you that that you try to do is to say, well, in Say in this case, you try to find out whether this woman has slept with your husband or not. Just, just try to, and whatever feelings it brings up in that actress, it'll bring up. But at least she will be driven, and actions, of course, are like the, are like the, uh, when you, you know, when you give someone a barium test and everything, everything kind of lights up. That's what actions do, and you see what's. What's going on underneath, in that way. But as soon as you tell an actor about an um, an emotional thing, they want, Even if they say, "Oh yes, yes, I understand that," they're talking from their own understanding. Um, emotions are not the common language; actions are between you and the actor and the audience too.
5: So, it's clear. And it's you know, the simplest thing. Yeah, we did focus mainly on what you were trying to get, and I guess it just that didn't fire him. And she's got it because Milton went flat.
2: What What did he What was
5: this? Said you married this man, so you you lost it. What does
2: that mean? Well, uh, see again. He carefully He said, "What does that mean to you?" He carefully avoided saying what it should mean to her emotionally. And that's the critical... So sometimes, that's right, yeah, you know, often that's an awfully good thing for a director to do, is just remind them of a certain aspect of the circumstances, which sometimes seems so obvious that one doesn't even think to say it. But just, yeah, and and, and even if you say the wrong one, even if you say you've been married for 12 years to this man, to a certain actor, it's not going to harm them. It won't obligate paralyzing it just it just won't be the one that works so you think of some other aspect of the circumstance you say I'm pulling this out of the air you say you know you I mean I, I don't remember the place specifically enough notice to make any sense but you would say for example you know you were looking forward to going on a vacation with your husband in two months just a circumstance you're not asking them to have a certain feeling about that but you just keep saying, like, here's the heart of the scene, and here are the different outer circumstances that are pressing in on it. And you just, you try this circumstance, try this one. Sooner or later, you're going to find one that, that connects. But, uh, and in fact, you are right, that, that actions without circumstances animating them can start to seem kind of dry. But the thing to avoid is as just to repeat myself is any I mean I had a director once in the scene where I was supposed to get offset and he said he said my wife had an operation last week and she came home and she sat in the bathtub and just sobbed racking sobs for three hours. That's what I want from you. He never got it. <laughs> I mean I thought I thought fine, fine, fine. But I thought <laughs> I can't do that. I mean, I don't know. That's so enormous. I just, I just froze. So, so I found a thing of my own. And I would say, no, does that get close? Yeah. But I mean, you know, that's that's the extreme version of what you should avoid.
1: Other questions?
2: Because it intimidates, it just
5: freezes the act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose that girl working with directors in the place that you wrote. Excellent. And did you choose that? in the
2: in the first productions I did. Um Booth uh, has only been done twice, first at, at Longworth and then in, in New York. And each time I was involved in, in picking the director there. But Uncle Bob has been done all over the place. Oh. And uh, the only director I ever picked for that was the first one. You were in that Well, I was in it in Chicago. I wasn't in it in New York. And then, and then another director asked me to do it in Hartford and sort of said he wouldn't do the play unless I did it. And so I did it for him. And that was... I wish I could speak to playwrights about this because...
1: You asked the new one. <laughs> oh, I am. New one, yes.
2: Okay, excellent. Well, the... It has been... It, it had been done in New York and Chicago. So it had been done, and it had been published. And so this, this man from Hartford called not at Hartford Stage, but at a smaller theater called Theater And he said he wanted to do it, and he wanted me to do it. And I said, well, I can't. He said, well, then I might not do the place. So I said, I'll do it, I'll do it. Then he called me and said, now, when you show up for rehearsal, are you going to show up as the actor or the playwright? I said, the actor?
5: Like, that's the way I want it. Okay. I said, the fir- I didn't know what he was doing in this play.
2: First of all, the play had played an hour and a half in New York and Chicago. This production was two and a half hours. Now, part of that was an intermission, which I didn't want. But even if you include the intermission, that's 45 minutes extra playing time. The casting of the other part was with an
5: excellent actor, but I thought the casting. Was really at all.
2: The way he was articulating every moment in the direction, the way they were being articulated in the direction, I thought. This and a couple of moments, I thought, if I can get through acting this moment in my play on stage in front of people the way he wants it acted, I can live through anything. Mm-hmm. Artistic. But I thought I'd promise to keep quiet. It's already been done in New York and Chicago, and at uh, this point there were a couple of other productions on the horizon. There, it's been published. Just cool it, Austin. Just cool it. So grimly, I went every day to work. I mean, I liked the director. I, mean, I like the other actor a lot, and I'm well. Of course, it was a smash. It was the biggest hit that the play ever. The best reviews it's ever had. I mean, it gets typically it gets a, a couple of terrific reviews, a couple of really terrible reviews, and a bunch of essentially sympathetic reviews in the middle. That's the typical pattern. Hartford, there wasn't anything. It wasn't fabulous. It sold out. They had to bring in extra chairs. And this play is not like how shall I put it? It's not like uh, uh, easy listening. You know, it, and it, it's it's hard. It's an emotionally disturbing play, so it's not like a, a crowd pleaser. Hartford and Hartford is in the most conservative audience in the world. They loved it, and they got it, and the reviews got it. I mean, I want to tell that story to every playwright. And I, if I if that had been the original production, I would have I would have been fighting it with every. Ounce of strength at my command the whole way. But um, all you finally need to ask of any production of your play is that the people be competent. Beyond that, just let it go. You know, and and, I mean, there were things that I had. I I mean, I thought the New York production was wonderful. And I thought that the the Chicago one, I wasn't as objective about because I was in it. But it was the New York production set with me in it, the same director, the same other actor, and um, and and. But I suddenly saw in Hartford that certain things that I had like made sure were not going to happen were happened, and that they were fine. I mean, and the times I've directed the works of playwrights, and they start screaming, "No!" Because if you do it that way, the audience will think playwrights are. Paradoxically, so into concealment. You know, if the play's any good, they aren't into that when they write. But then, once they've written it, it's got to be a certain way because if it's this way, the audience will think I'm like this, and and they'll they get hysterical. About People will say, "I've heard this sentence a lot." People will say X. People will say Y. Well, if you win the argument, or you just ignore them and you do it that way, no one says that. This is utterly private terrors that the playwright has. And um, um, so, but I, but then, and and then I, I, even before we opened it, I began to at least see that this. Production in its own terms. I found the terms, you know, theatrically and dramatically appalling, just to some degree. But I thought this this guy certainly knows how to how to realize the production in its own terms. I, I was beginning to see. It. I said, "Well, some of the Jews playing. I got to admit that." But um, yeah, well, they're going to hate it. Well, they love it. And then I've never seen a badly directed production. Not very but part of that, I think, is the result of what I learned in Hartford, is that often a production, from a playwright's point of view, is better directed than you think it is, if you'll just look at it, it's as opposed to kind of seeing it up and up against the production that it has to be. Well, like what happened with uh, uh, Lillian Hellman with the set of The Little Foxes. She killed that show
5: in London. I'm afraid I'll lose mine. Yeah, well. That d- story will save me. Don't. I'll go back don't. to that in my
2: head. And, and Arthur Miller. Oh my God. And we get along great. But I directed the the, the American Clock. Of I know for a fact it's the best piece of work i ever did. I mean, first of all, everybody else, said, but I know. And Arthur's friends all said wonderful. I mean, wonderful. And Greg Mosher, we talked about the Lincoln Center and all that. and we didn't, but because Greg wanted Arthur to rewrite it. That wasn't about that.
5: So it's all
2: kind of fell But anyway, <laughs> um, there was one scene Arthur wanted it direct. He was so upset about it, and finally he just wouldn't come see it. Anymore. He, all a scene of Iowa farmers during the revolt. It's all, its a play about the Depression. It's not—it's not so much a play as kind of a loosey notebook. But it's—I think it's wonderful. And the scene of the Iowa—I did a lot of research about the Iowa Farmers' Revolt, and and I and I—it seemed like—and the play itself seemed to support this to me a lot—that it was a revolt by a bunch of conservatives. That was, what was so heartbreaking. I mean, Iowa farmers in the thirties played by the rules, for them to revolt. So it was very almost laconically um, directed, very quiet. And Arthur came to to um, to to, to run through with with uh, with Inga, his his wife, in general, I forget how to say name, But Anyway, she her favorite scene. She said at the end, the farmer's scene was terrific, you know, and all that. Right there, wanted. I tell you, I swear to you, he wanted a 1930s Warner Brothers melodrama. He wanted a firebrand up there. He wanted the stagiest. Movie. And I thought, this is why when the, his plays gets on, everybody says they're heavy handed. They're not. But he and and he would give me a give me a list of, in the scenes of this is the signature word. The actor must emphasize this word. Or the audience won't get the lines. His lines are not that hard to understand. You know, if you say them and you're really playing the scene, it doesn't matter what word gets. <laughs> but he was terrified that the audience wouldn't get the point. And I suddenly saw why whenever no wonder his plays are more popular in Europe. He's not there. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I mean and this is a brilliant man. This is not some kind of uh, like us, this isn't some kind of some kind of neophyte, you know. And, but, he, but I tell you, they, there are so, your one is so afraid that one's play isn't going to be clear. Well, your play is either clear or it isn't. If your play is, is inwardly clear and it's, it's, it's performed and directed in a competent way, the clarity of it will be revealed to the audience. There's a, in any play, there are, and um, there are like 20 ways of expressing the clarity of a play, unless it's, a completely generic piece. I wouldn't want to fool around like I wouldn't want to fool around with dial in for murder. But but I mean but but you know, apart from a completely generic play and playwrights, myself included, until I was blinded on the road to Damascus in Hartford, uh, they think if it isn't like this it won't be clear or the subconscious component of that is, or things might come out that I don't want people to see, you know. And every you have to look at yourself very hard about that, because playwrights are so funny that way. They're so public and they're so private. They're so they're so driven to reveal in the writing and driven to conceal in the production. It's got to be this, or it'll be like this, and then I'll be humiliated. And I mean, I've had I've had the whole the hands of playwrights of productions, whose productions I have to reckon, of either gender, sobbing. i worked so hard, and she is saying like, uh-huh. And this uh, is two years And there's no problem. <laughs> you know, and you say, what is it that it upsets you so much about the way? Because it just looks like... You know, and you can't make any sense, and it isn't... <laughs> you know, it just... And you're just saying, why was I born... Why am I sitting here? I should be working on the production, not trying to soothe this person. But you know, you have to. Now Arthur Miller doesn't cry. <laughs> you know, but but uh, uh, um, and of course I, he's a brilliant man. He's a brilliant man, and and, and he certainly understands theater. Uh, his worst detractors have never suggested otherwise. But I tell you, I said, um, if 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 they had been in New York. And we'd had like previews, lots of previews. And I'd had and I would have finally had to restage that term scene the way he wanted. It would have done him no good. People would have said this corny writing from the thirties. And the scene, as written, as conceived, is so much richer than that.
1: We're kind of getting to the end of our time. I just wanted to in order to wind up, ask you one more thing, and that is what Challenges are, are out there that you still uh, want to face. What, as, a uh, director? as a director, yeah. What, uh, I don't know. what still excites
2: What me? always? There have only been like three plays or, that I've ever done. And I've directed now about six, seven plays. There's only been about three plays that I've like really wanted to do. One of them was The most American class. I wanted to do all, all the Chekhov ones. Oh, not never done the the Big Four, and I've done them all. And a couple of mm-hmm. new plays I really want to do. But, yeah. but in general, almost everything I've directed has arisen. Mm-hmm. Somebody's either said, would you direct this? Or like, I'd be talking with Nikos, so and he would say, Olympia wants to do a Tennessee Williams play this what should we do i say Orphe's the same. And then once you get into it, you get really excited that you're drinking Orphe's the same. But I, I tend not to um, think that way. I, I tend to, things come up and then I get turned on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes somebody will come up with a play that I, I, I turned down a play two weeks ago because uh, I was
5: Um, and I read it, and I said, I, there's no way I can make this play. Work.
2: It's a play that's,
5: that's worked so well for But I, I
2: can't, I just don't understand, begin to understand how this play would work. At least play now, but still. And, um, so you, you better get somebody else, but i it. But usually there's something, like when when I was asked
5: to do the little focus, I thought, well, now hold on. Elizabeth Taylor it's all very I mean I used to love Elizabeth Taylor when I was growing up.
2: I used to love some of her acting. Not all of it, but some of it. And I and I said, but wait, you've been in this play. I was in the Mike Nichols production a few years like fifteen years before. I said, You better read it. Because I thought Mike's production was perfect. And you better read it to see if you know you have anything to bring to the table. It would be terrible to direct Elizabeth Taylor in her stage debut and just show up just because you wanted to be there, mm-hmm. you know. And and I and so I, I set up in the in, I sat up in the bathroom late one night and re-read the play. And and as I say, at this point, thirteen or fourteen years ago. Since I've been in it. and uh, things did come to me, things that have happened in my life since then seem to connect with it.
0: Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theater Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.